The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. I feel like every other time I've been up here, there's been an announcement that I've had to make, so I need to assure everyone... There is no announcement today. (laughs) Uh, Instead, it is my great privilege to be able to open the word with you today. Uh, So we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 to 8. But first, let's open in prayer. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, whose word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood, that in nothing we may be displeasing to your majesty through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, I think 1 Corinthians 13, and particularly verses 4 to the start of 8, could well be the most well-known passage of Scripture ever. In fact, you could be forgiven for checking the date to make sure that it's not actually Valentine's Day, or for looking to make sure there's not a bride coming down the aisle. The passage has become so intrinsically linked to the idea of romantic love that it's become almost cliche. Now, it doesn't not apply to romantic love. Uh, I know that if you had it at your wedding, that is completely fine. I know I did at mine. But the problem with limiting it to that is that if we forget that the chapter breaks exist and just read it in its context, then the idea of it being about marital love doesn't really make sense. So let's back up a bit and put the chapter back into the context that Paul wrote it in. We'll go back just a few verses and read from chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. 
Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. When we look at chapter 12, we find Paul talking about spiritual gifts. And we were to go forward to chapter 14, we would find him back on that theme again. He's explaining how the church is the body of Christ. And each part of that body, each one of us, is gifted in a particular way for the health of the body. Now, my purpose today is not to get into the somewhat thorny topic of the more supernatural gifts that Paul lists here. So I'm just going to acknowledge that there is disagreement upon on that among faithful believers. But whichever way you lean on that, Paul's message is still relevant. And what is that? Simply that it's great to desire spiritual gifts, but there is something even better that we should be looking for. Which brings us back to our passage today and that more excellent way that he refers to, love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. He starts by taking some of the spiritual gifts that he mentioned in chapter 12 and he turns them up to 11. You want to talk about the ability to speak other languages? What if you had the ability to speak in the tongues of angels? You want to talk about prophecy? What if you had the ability to understand everything? You want to talk about faith? What if you could even speak to a mountain and it could move? Generosity? What if you gave away everything, including your life? If you had any one of those and you don't have love, Paul's brutal assessment is you have nothing. Your angelic words sound like a gong. Your understanding of everything, your amazing faith, nothing. Your complete sacrifice, worthless. Unless love undergirds everything that we do, we are wasting our time. So what does this love look like? If you've been to enough weddings, you probably know this bit off by heart. But as we look at it again, let's think about it in this context of living as part of the body of Christ. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So love is patient and kind. What comes to mind when we think of being patient? 
We might think of having to wait for food at a busy restaurant or having to wait at a red, for a red light to change when we're in a hurry. Maybe we think about meeting with someone when, when they're running late or waiting for a child to get ready. How many parents did that this morning? When we look to scripture, though, we see God's patience described in relation to our sin. 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And in 2 Peter 3, we see that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise or to bring judgment for sin, as some count slowness, but is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then in Romans 2, Paul brings the patience of God together with his kindness and says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. When we see our sin for what it is as a supreme offense against a holy God, then we are forced to accept that we deserve the judgment of God. But instead we see him demonstrate his patience and his kindness towards us in not treating us as we deserve. Instead he reaches out in kindness and mercy. I'm sure that if we were being completely honest, we would confess that there are maybe people even here that we don't particularly like. Or maybe there are people outside the church who we think deserve judgment. Our posture towards these people should reflect that of Christ's. Not one of condemnation or judgment, but one of reaching out in kindness. Love does not envy or boast. If we truly love, we're not playing the comparison game. We're not looking at others who have something that we don't have, whether it be something tangible or something more intangible like the gifts that Paul was talking about earlier, and becoming envious or resentful of them. We're not looking at what we do have and becoming proud Instead, we take the perspective that Paul calls us to in 1 Corinthians 4 when he says, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? I could sit back and grumble because God hasn't given me the same musical talents that he's given Renat. Or... I could thank God that he has blessed North Pine by giving Renat his talents. And at the same time, I can take stock of the gifts that he has given me and see how I too can be a blessing to the church by using them well. Rather than being boastful, we should look to be humble in how we think and act. Rather than seeking a platform or recognition, our posture should be of one looking to serve. As Paul says in Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is not arrogant or rude. There's a school of thought in some corners of the Christian church, I don't know if you've come across them, I certainly have, that says, I don't care what people think. I'm just going to tell it how it is, and if they get offended, that's their problem. I'm just speaking truth. I'm in that fun age where I can stereotype the older generation by saying that they're doing this because they've reached a point where they just don't care. And I can look at the younger generation and call them out because they're just doing it out of a brash, youthful arrogance. But let's be honest, metaphorically speaking, uh, metaphorically beating someone over the head in correction while claiming that it's okay because it's done in love is something that crosses generational lines. I'll even confess I've been known to do it myself, although I might defend myself by saying that I was youthfully brash and arrogant. (laughs) Paul calls us out for this behavior here. Love and arrogance or rudeness don't belong anywhere near each other. Now, he's not saying that we shouldn't be firm with people when necessary. And if you have any doubt on that, you can look a few chapters earlier than this in chapter 5 to hear Paul rebuking the Corinthians quite strongly. But what he is saying is that we should take care with our posture towards others. Let us pursue a constant attitude of humility and graciousness. It does not insist on its own way. Now, we all like things done a particular way, right? I was talking to somebody recently when the topic of worship music came up, and he made the comment that you'll find that most people's preference is for the music from when they were saved. Obviously, the problem with that is we didn't all get saved at the same time. There's people here who had been saved just in the last five years. And there's people here who were saved 50 or more years ago. Last I checked, there has been some monumental changes in music styles and influences over that period of time. So how do we deal with that in a way that reflects our love for each other? Maybe it looks something like those younger in the faith asking that we play more older hymns so that we can bless the older generation. And maybe it's for those who have been serving God faithfully for years, just being really excited to sing the latest music so that our younger brothers and sisters can be blessed. The love that Paul calls us to here has us saying, no, I insist, you first. It is not irritable or resentful. Now, I like how the NIV phrases this. It says that love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It draws me immediately to Psalm 130, where the psalmist says, if you, Lord, kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? We so easily hold on to the different ways that others have done the wrong thing. We nurse our grievance and we keep it alive. And then the person does something else that we think is wrong. Maybe not quite so big as a bigger wrong as the first one, but it sits very nicely beside that first one. 
Next thing you know, we've got a nice big pile of grievances against the other person. And then one day they walk past and say hello. But you just find something in their tone that sets you off and you take their head off. Rather than holding on to the wrongs of our brothers, Christ calls us to a level of forgiveness that is almost unbelievable. When Peter came to him one day and said, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him as many as seven times. The response that he received was either, depending on the translation, either 77 times or 70 times seven times. Either way, far more than the seven times that Peter thought was more than generous. And why is this? Jesus illustrated the point with a story about a man who owed a massive debt to a king that he could never repay. Apparently, about 60 million days wages. Rather than punishing him, the man cleared his debt completely. As the man was leaving, he came across another man who owed him money equivalent to about 100 days wages. Rather than forgiving the man the debt, he had him thrown into prison for being unable to pay. When the king found out about what would happen, he was furious and said to the man, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now, a hundred days wages isn't a small debt. But when compared to the 60 million days debt that the man originally owed, it really is insignificant. In the same way, the wrongs that our brothers do to us are insignificant in comparison to our sin before God. If he has forgiven us, we should also forgive our brothers. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. On the surface, this is obvious, right? Of course we shouldn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Of course we should rejoice with the truth. But if we're honest, don't we get a little bit of satisfaction when someone we don't like gets caught out doing something wrong? Don't we have a tendency to rejoice maybe just a little bit? Or maybe we just enjoy a little bit of gossip here and there. Do you hear about Dave? A shame. Or maybe like the Corinthians earlier in the book, we tolerate serious, unrepentant sin in our midst and celebrate about how gracious we're being. You know what? Maybe we just enjoy doing the wrong thing ourselves sometimes. However it looks, let us not find pleasure or satisfaction in wickedness. Instead, it should cause us to grieve. We should grieve when the sins of others, whether we like them or not, become apparent. And we should grieve for our own sinfulness. At the same time, we should be quick to celebrate righteousness and truth. We should be the first in line to praise someone when they do something commendable. Openness and honesty are things that we should value highly. And repentance should lead us to rejoicing. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, 
endures all things. There's a sense in which love can be described as eternal optimism, constantly looking at the good in everything. Love causes us to trust our brothers and sisters and hope that they'll come through on the trust that we put in them. And then, when they let us down, love helps us endure the pain and difficulty that that brings. Love doesn't quit when life gets hard. Instead, it hopes that things will get better. It sees the best in any situation and hopes for that outcome, enduring any pain that may come along that journey. The best example of this is obviously in Christ. God created humanity and we completely rejected him. We came up with other things to worship and serve them instead. But he didn't just give up at that point and write us off as a lost cause. Instead, he put into action a plan to save us and bring us back to him. The infinite God became a helpless baby, relying on the woman who he created to care for him for his very life. He lived a perfect life and then willingly endured the pain, suffering, and humiliation of his death on a cross. And he did that for you, for me, and for those people who continually let us down. Love never ends. Paul goes on to talk about how there will come a time when there is no need for the various gifts that the Spirit gives, and they will be no more. So while we value them now, and use them for the benefit of the body, we need to keep them in their proper place. But what remains? Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is why Paul insists that our pursuit of love as the foundation of our life is the most excellent way. Now, you might be sitting here this morning thinking that if you're really honest with yourself, you really don't stack up, up stack up as much on as you'd like on the love front. Sure, you may not be arrogant or rude, and you certainly don't want to insist that everything be done just to suit you. But maybe you do tend to hold on to people's wrongs, and you know, it really would be nice to be able to be up the front here leading worship from time to time. Firstly, let me assure you, you're not alone. This is a journey that we are all on. This love is an element of the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in our lives and the closer we draw to him, the more it will grow. Secondly, and more importantly, love isn't just an attitude that we have or a way that we act. We serve a God who is love. God is patient and kind with us when we fail him. He doesn't hold on to our sin and become irritable or resentful of us. Instead, he bears our sin and is constantly reaching out to us. As we look at Christ, we see the love of God in action. We see how he shows his love for us and also a picture of how we are to show our love, his love, to others. Let me close with the words of the Apostle John. 
difference. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how he shows his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for for the love that you show us when we don't deserve it. Lord, we... We fail you so often. We fail at loving our brothers and sisters so often. And yet you still are there reaching out in love and grace and forgiveness. We ask that the fruit of love will grow in our lives. Let our love be a sign that you are here and that we serve you. We pray that even this church will be known as one where God's people love one another. In your holy name, amen.